Okay, let's take our Bibles this evening. If you would, and turn to First Timothy. Excuse me. First Timothy and chapter one this evening. First Timothy chapter one, and let's begin reading from verse eighteen this evening. First Timothy one verse eighteen says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck, of whom is Hermenius and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you once more for uh, the opportunity to be here this evening. We thank you, Lord, that we're able to come and spend time together around your word. I pray, Lord, as we continue our study in First Timothy this evening, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would teach us through your word. I pray, Lord, that you would empower me through the Spirit, You'll give me wisdom and guidance, that it would be your words, it would be your thoughts, and that, Lord, you would receive all the glory, the honor, and the praise this evening. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, of course, here in chapter 1 of First Timothy, we've, we've seen the fact that the church at Ephesus uh, was in desperate need of a godly leader. Now, in need of a godly leader because there was false teachers who had entered into the church and were endangering uh, the body of believers. And of course that man, given this task, was young Timothy. He had been commissioned by Paul, and indeed by the Lord, to stay there at Ephesus and to direct the people back to the truth of God's word. Now as we've seen, one of the main problems that the false teachers had is that they had mishandled the law of God. They themselves hadn't been trained in the law, and yet they desired to teach the law. And because they hadn't been trained, they mishandled God's law, and they applied the law to the believer. That was somehow something that the believer had to keep to remain saved, or indeed to be sanctified. And knowing that this was their problem, Paul spent time uh, in the middle of the chapter here speaking about the proper use of the law of God. And Paul showed us how it was given to bring uh, the unrighteous to a position of guilt before God, to show them their sin. It was given to bring men to Christ. And we saw the law and the gospel work in perfect harmony with one another. You know, the law gives the diagnosis, the gospel provides the answer. And to make this point clear, Paul then, as we saw last time, went on to give his own personal testimony. If you look there in verse 12 with me, it says, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. He was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. 
Be it for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to everlast, life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And so we looked at Paul's testimony last time. Okay, Paul uh, demonstrated clearly how he was saved and called by God's grace. Now, even though he was a Pharisee and he had spent his whole life seeking to keep the law, it hadn't put him in a right standing with God. It hadn't saved him. Indeed, all that the law did in the end was condemn him of his sin. The law showed Paul that he was guilty before God and Paul saw himself as the very worst of sinners. He says, I was the chief of sinners. And so it's only by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul was saved and indeed it was by God's grace that he was called into the ministry. And Paul's own testimony showed how futile it was to take the law now and apply it to the believer as a means to stay saved. It showed how salvation was indeed by grace alone through faith. And it's this wonderful gospel message, it's the truth that salvation is by grace through faith. It's the truth that Timothy is there at Ephesus to protect. That's what he's there to do. That's what he's been left behind to do, to protect the truth. And it's with this all in mind that Paul now once more returns to his commission that he gives unto young Timothy. And so notice we first of all here this evening that we see Timothy's duty. We see Timothy's Duty. Look there in verse 18 with me. It says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou mightest by them, sorry, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Paul begins verse 18 with the words, he says, This charge I commit unto thee. And so he's returned back to his original thought. Okay, that, that word charge there is a, a military term. It's the idea of a commanding officer passing down a decree, passing down an order for someone else to follow. And so Paul here is passing down a command, an order unto Timothy. And he does so, of course, because he has the authority uh, of being an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't he? So he's speaking this command with authority unto Timothy. And the charge that he's referring to is the charge that he laid out earlier at the beginning of the chapter. If you go back to verse 3 with me, it says, As I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus, when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some, that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than God the edifying, which is in faith, so do. Now the end of the commandment is charity, out of a pure heart, and of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned. So this is the, the command that he's referring to here, this charge. He says, this charge, and it's going back to the start of the chapter, okay, where he's given this commission, this charge unto Timothy. In verse 3, we see that same word charge used. And then in verse 5, it says, now the end of the commandment, and that's that same Greek word just in the verb form. Okay, it's the same idea. And so this, it's this charge, it's this commandment or commission that Paul gave to Timothy at the start of the chapter that he has in mind here now in verse 18 when he says this charge. And Hendrickson summed up well the charge that he gave earlier. It says, he says this, 
it is the mandate or instruction that Timothy stay on at Ephesus in order that he may teach certain individuals not to make misuse of the law, but to use it lawfully unto conversion to Christ, the sinner's saviour. That was the charge he was given, wasn't it? To stay there at Ephesus and to command some, they stop teaching their false doctrine. Stop chasing after endless genealogies. Stop misusing the law. That was the command. And to point them back to the truth of the gospel message. And so this is the charge that Paul here is talking about. And he says, this charge I commit unto you, son Timothy. Now the word commit there, in verse 18, where he says, this charge I commit unto thee, that word commits means deposit or to entrust. It's like a banking term, if you like, to deposit in someone's accounts. You're trusting them with something. And so Paul here is trusting Timothy with this task. He's trusting him with this commission of great importance. And the idea is that it tells us that he has great faith in Timothy, doesn't it? Okay? The fact that he's entrusting it to him says that he believes Timothy is someone who's going to be faithful. It's someone he can trust with the task, someone he can trust to fulfill this calling, someone God can trust to fulfill this calling. And then Paul further describes this charge as being in complete agreement with Timothy's calling. He says there in verse 18, he says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou mightest buy them, sorry, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. In the next part of the verse there we read the words, it says, according to the prophecies which went on before thee. Now these words here seem to refer to some prophecies that were spoken about Timothy concerning his ministry, concerning his calling when he was ordained to the ministry. Okay. Um, <clears throat> one commentator said this, he said, the prophecies which went before were no doubt certain sacred utterances that Paul and others were inspired to make on the ordination of Timothy and which indicated a divine commission. Um, we see it referred to again in chapter 4, verse 14. Just turn there. <clears throat> in chapter 4 and verse 14, we read these words. It says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. And so again here we read of Timothy's ordination, where he was commissioned to the ministry by the believers. And again we see that Paul speaks about prophecy here in verse 14, doesn't he? He says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy. And so again he refers to these prophecies that were spoken concerning Timothy and his ministry, his calling. And so it's clear the Holy Ghost had revealed to those who had the gift of prophecy, okay, which of course in the early church it was, you know, it was there, it was a real thing. Okay? And so the Holy Spirit revealed to these people the gift of prophecy, something about Timothy's gift, something about Timothy's calling to the ministry. And it was this that then led them to separate him for the ministry, okay, knowing this about him from the Holy Ghost. If you like, we see a similar event in Acts chapter 13. Just turn over there. Acts chapter 13, we know this passage well. This is where Paul and Barnabas were separated for the ministry. And we see a similar thing uh, take place. 
in Acts 13, <clears throat> verse 1, it says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. When they had fasted and prayed they, and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. See, we, here we see a similar event, don't we? Okay, the, the church is together. They're praying, they're fasting, and the Holy Ghost tells them, Separate unto me, Barnabas and Paul, for the ministry. The Holy Ghost tells them something of the calling upon these two men, upon their lives. They're the ones called to this ministry, this task, this missionary work. And so a similar thing has happened in young Timothy's life. Okay, similar things happen, and Paul here is reminding Timothy of that occasion. He's reminding him of the prophecies which went on before him. Reminding him that the charge that he has given him now is indeed in accordance with what God called him to. Okay, it's what God had called him to in the first place, what he was separated unto the ministry for. You see, God had called and God had enabled Timothy for this work. And it's with this in mind that Timothy is called upon to war a good warfare. Okay, it says there at the end of verse 18, <clears throat> This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. And so it's with this in mind that he was called and enabled by God that Timothy is to war a good warfare. Now we see Paul here use even more military language. He already used the word charge, which is a command from a superior officer. And now he talks about warring a good warfare. He's using more military terms to describe how Timothy is to carry out this commission, carry out this charge. You see, Timothy, like every believer, was facing an ongoing spiritual battle, a spiritual war. And for Timothy in particular, his battlefield was Ephesus, wasn't it? That's, that's his battlefield. That's where he's serving the Lord. And the opponents to the truth were infiltrating the church there at Ephesus. And so Timothy had to contend with them, didn't he? He had to contend with their false doctrine. He had to contend for the faith. He had to war a good warfare. But you know, the knowledge that God had chosen him, the knowledge that God had sent him, would certainly give him assurance in this work, wouldn't it? It would encourage him in the face of the enemy. The fact that God had called him and God had chosen him. These prophecies that went on before. And now in verse 19, Paul indicates how it is that he is to go about fulfilling this duty. How it is that he is to war a good warfare. There in verse 19, it says, Holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. And so Paul tells Timothy here, or admonishes Timothy, if you like, to do two things to fulfill this duty of warring a good warfare. He tells him, first of all, to hold the faith. Hold the faith. Start of verse 19, holding faith is how it's worded. In other words, he's to hold on to the faith, or if you like, hold on to the truth of the gospel message, the truth of God's word, the truth that he had been given by the Apostle Paul. 
Now, he was facing false teachers who were preaching error, who were spreading error, and therefore he needed to hold fast to the truth and not move. He needed to cling to the faith. You know, the truth of God's word and our firm faith in it is the best defense that we have against the enemy. Okay, the truth of God's word and our unmovable faith in, the, in God's word. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, Paul describes our faith as a shield. Just turn over there, Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> a passage we know well, it's the, the armor, <clears throat> spiritual armor that we're to put on. In Ephesians 6, verse 16, <clears throat> it says, Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. So here Paul describes our faith as a shield. It's a shield against the fiery darts of the wicked. You see, if we fail to hold on to the faith, if we fail to hold on to the, this, the truth of God's word and our faith in God's word, then we're laying down the shield, aren't we? And we're exposing ourselves to attacks. We're making ourselves vulnerable. You see, with that in mind, Paul urges Timothy here, he says, hold the faith. He says, don't let it go. Hold the faith. Hold fast to the truth of God's word and your faith in God and his word. Stand fast, unmovable on the truth. And then he says to Timothy, the second thing that he needs to do is hold on to a good conscience. He says there in verse 19, holding faith, and a good conscience. Hold faith and a good conscience. Now we've seen this phrase good conscience used earlier on in the chapter, back in verse 5. It says, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. So we've seen this idea of good conscience mentioned earlier. And when we looked at verse 5, we, we talked about how the good conscience is the result of being new creatures in Christ Jesus. Our conscience is renewed. We're, we're saved. We're new creatures. And so we have a good conscience. You see, before salvation, man's conscience is evil. It's, it's uh, defiled. It's not functioning as God intended. But the believer's conscience is able to function as God intended. You see, it now convinces and convicts us of sin. It leads us to seek to walk morally upright in this present world, doesn't it? Our conscience. That's so when Paul exhorts Timothy here to hold on to a good conscience. He's exhorting Timothy to live his faith here on earth. To live the truth before men. To maintain that, that good conscience, listening to the Holy Spirit within. Listening to the Spirit and seek to walk morally upright before man and indeed before God. Now Peter spoke about this same idea of having a good conscience before man in First Peter. <clears throat> Just turn there, First Peter chapter 3. First Peter 3 and verse 15. It says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man 
that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. You know, Peter here expresses very similar ideas, doesn't he? You know, in verse 15, he speaks about holding the faith, knowing the truth of God's word, having our firm faith in it, so that we might be ready to answer every man. Isn't that what he says in verse 15? But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh your reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And so it's that same idea of holding the faith, holding on to the truth, so we might be able to answer every man. And then in verse 16, he goes on, he says, having a good conscience. Same idea again. Having good conscience, living that faith, living the truth before others so that they might be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ Jesus. Living our faith before men. Not just believing it, not just saying we believe it, but living it and holding on to it. You see, that's what Paul is instructing young Timothy to do here. When he says that he's to war a good warfare, he says you need to do these two things. You need to hold on to the faith and live that faith before others. Maintaining a good conscience, listening to the Holy Spirit within. You see, Paul knew that these two were of vital importance if he was going to be successful, if he was going to war a good warfare. And to prove his point, Paul now points, to, points out an example of two men who failed to hold the faith and a good conscience. Now, so notice with me, secondly, here this evening, we've talked about Timothy's duty. Now, notice with me, secondly, two men who failed. Two men who failed. Look there in verse 19 again. <clears throat> it says, Holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hermenius and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul he mentions two professing believers who had failed in their responsibility to war a good warfare. We read there in verse 19, it says, Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. It says, which some, having put away. Now the which there, that word which refers back to the good conscience. Okay, So they put away their good conscience. That's what he's saying here. Okay, these men had put away their good conscience and it was that that led them to being shipwrecked, their faith being shipwrecked. Now the Greek word translated here, having put away. The word speaks of a willful act. It speaks of a deliberate action. And it also speaks of a violent rejection. So it's a deliberate, violent casting off. So Paul is telling us here that these men had willfully and violently gone against their good conscience. Gone against their conscience. One commentator wrote this, These false teachers treated the matter of maintaining their spiritual integrity as a minor matter as they played fast and loose with the Scriptures. When their conscience goaded them, they thrust from them their good conscience. 
The word implies the violence of the act required. You see, it took a willful, deliberate action, deliberate decision to go against the conscience and continue in their sin. And the result of this decision was that they shipwrecked the faith. It says there in verse 19, it says, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. They cast off, they put away their good conscience. And the result was concerning faith, they made shipwreck. The word faith here speaks of the truth, just like it did earlier in verse 18. They cast off their conscience and it resulted in them distorting the truth, corrupting the gospel message, corrupting the truth of God's word, preaching and teaching error. They shipwrecked the faith. Henriksen explained it well. He said, Now a good sailor does not thrust away or discard the rudder of the ship. The good conscience, one that obeys the dictates of God's word as applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit, is the rudder guiding the believer's vessel into the safe harbor of everlasting rest. But certain individuals have discarded that rudder. It explains it well, doesn't it? It's like you're in the vessel, in the ship, and they've, they've cast off the rudder. They've just taken it away, and now it's blindly just going wherever it's let to go. The good conscience is the rudder. They've discarded the rudder. And the inevitable res- result is that they've ran upon the rocks. They've shipwrecked the faith. And in verse 20, Paul gives us the name of two men in particular who were guilty of shipwrecking the faith, Hermanius and Alexander. Read there in verse 20. It says, Of whom is Hermanius and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. He gives us the name of these two men, Hermanius and Alexander. Now the first of these men, Hermanius, is mentioned again in Second Timothy chapter 2. Just turn over there. <clears throat> In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 16 it says, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hermenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. And so he's mentioned again in 2 Timothy. And this time we see something of his false doctrine. It was concerning the resurrection. He taught the resurrection was already past. Now one commentator wrote this. He said he probably spiritualized the doctrine of the resurrection and related it to conversion and thus denied the existence of any bodily resurrection in the future. And so this was certainly part of his false teaching, a denial of the resurrection this wonderful, glorious truth that we all look forward to. The other culprit mentioned here is a man named Alexander. Now this man is not as easy to identify with other Alexanders mentioned in the Word of God. And the reason is that Alexander is a very common name. And so we can't be sure that he is exactly one of the other Alexanders mentioned. But it is possible that he is the Alexander mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14. 
2 Timothy 4, verse 14, it says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his works. And so it's possible that these are the two, uh, are the same man, okay, Alexander the coppersmith, this one who did him much evil. But regardless of whether it's the same or not, this man, Alexander, mentioned here in our passage, like Hermenius, was guilty of casting off, willfully ignoring his conscience. And the result was that these two men became ringleaders of the false teachers there at Ephesus. That's why they're mentioned by name. They are, if you like, the ringleaders leading these false teachers in this false doctrine. And Wiersbe notes this. He says, Hymenius and Alexander deliberately rejected their good consciences in order to defend their ungodly lives. Paul did not tell us here exactly what they did except that their sin involved blasphemy in some way. We see that blasphemy mentioned there at the end of verse 20, don't we, of our present passage. It says, Of whom is Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So here he doesn't elaborate on everything that they did wrong. He basically just says that they were guilty of blasphemy in some form. Paul indicates that their departure from the truth had led to blasphemy against the Lord. And it had called for them to be strongly disciplined. It had called for strong disciplinary action by the church. And Paul describes that discipline here as being delivered unto Satan. Okay, he says, Whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now this expression, delivered unto Satan, is found one other time in the Word of God. It's Found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> Just turn over there with me. First <clears throat> Corinthians 5 and verse 1. <clears throat> it says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. I, and ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he, ha, he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in and my spirit, with the power of the, the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an, an one unto Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So this is the other time we see this expression delivered unto Satan found. And here it's in the context of this man, okay, in relation to this man who was in an incestuous relationship. But what exactly does it mean to be delivered unto Satan? And what does this course of action speak about? Well, in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 13, we're given uh, the answer, if you like. Verse 13 there says, But them that are without God judgeth, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So being delivered unto Satan speaks of being uh, put forth from the fellowship of the church. That's what it talks about here. Okay, this, this man mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, in this incestuous relationship, this man had cast off his good conscience, hadn't he? Okay, he cast off his good conscience. He was living in open sin, 
He was bringing shame upon the, uh, upon the Lord and upon the church. And therefore the church was instructed to remove him from their fellowship, from church membership, from the ability to serve in the local church anymore until such time as he repented of his sin. That's what it's talking about here when it says to be delivered unto Satan. And so that's the idea, same idea here in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy in verse 20 here of chapter 1, where it says that these two men were delivered unto Satan. It's the same idea. These two men who had been causing no end of problems in the church, Paul says he delivered them unto Satan or put them forth from the fellowship of the church, the membership of the church. The commentator Kent writes this. He says, excommunication from the church places the offender back in the world which is Satan's domain. Hence, to deliver under Satan can be understood as removal back to the world. Such a removal from the church was corrective in its intent. If the false teachers were allowed to continue in their evil practices, they would only lead others astray, but delude themselves into a false sense of spiritual security. So this idea of putting them forth was really about corrective discipline that was the end goal okay it was corrective and we see that here in verse 20 don't we okay, verse 20 says of whom is Hermenius and Alexander whom I have delivered under Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme that was the intent of this that they may learn not to blaspheme you see at the time of writing this letter unto Timothy these two men are still under church discipline they're still excluded from the fellowship and the membership of the church. But the prayer was that this discipline would bring them to repentance. That was the prayer. That was the goal. That they would come back to the truth and they would thus be restored to the church once more. But you know, these two men here are a sad example of what happens when you fail to war a good warfare. That's the reason they're mentioned here. They failed to war a good warfare. They're an example of what happens when we ignore our conscience. When we sear our conscience and we continue in sin. You see, when we do, we are violently casting off the rudder of the ship. And when we do that, we no doubt will end up shipwrecking not only our own faith, but we'll also shipwreck the faith. We'll corrupt the truth to justify our sin, to justify what we're doing. Because we've cast off our good conscience. You see, beloved, we must remember, like Timothy, that we are in a spiritual battle. We're in an ongoing war, aren't we? It's raging all around us. And it's our responsibility to fight the good fight of faith. But we must war a good warfare. And that means holding faith and a good conscience. We must proclaim the truth. Hold fast to the truth. And we must live the truth in our lives before men. If we don't, if we put away our good conscience, we will end up shipwrecking our faith. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this evening. We thank you, Lord, for the challenge given here to young Timothy to indeed war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Lord, I pray that you help each and every one of us here this evening to, likewise, Lord, where you've put us, 
in the ministry you've given to us, in the, the place of work you've given us. Help us to war a good warfare. Help us to hold fast to the faith and help us to do so with a good conscience, Lord. Uh, Lord, listening to the Holy Spirit within, dealing with sin in our own lives, living our faith before men. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't end up like these two men, Hermenius and Alexander, who, Lord, shipwrecked their faith. Lord, work in our hearts this evening. We thank you for your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>